Hello everybody, welcome along to another episode of Soundtracking. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our little podcast. We know that you have so many options out there, so we very much appreciate you choosing us. Uh, also, massive thanks to all the people who commented on last week's episode with Kristen Anderson Lopez and Bobby Lopez. I know that I could have gone deeper on so many things with them, but I had limited time, so I'm hoping that we get them back for another episode at some time. Um, in the future, but um, the way that they teased the future episodes of WandaVision, and I don't know if you are up to date on the series, which is dropping every Friday on Disney Plus. I mean, we're addicted to it. I think it's so good, it's so clever, and the way that it's kind of unfolding, and they were not wrong about the whole 80s vibe of last week's episode. So good. Anyway, that was last week, but our latest guest on Soundtracking is a composer whose name's been mentioned on countless occasions such has been his productivity across the diverse world of screen music. Elan Eshgray has worked on numerous films, TV shows and video games, the latest of which is the absolutely breathtakingly stunning Ghost of Tsushima for the PS4. He's also scored several documentaries for David Attenborough, including A Perfect Planet, which you can watch on the BBC iPlayer right now. Now, we'll hear plenty more about these and other things shortly, but first, a word from our friends at LinkedIn. Now, by all accounts, 2021 is uh, is kind of looking up. There seems to be a bit of light at the end of that, what has been a very long tunnel. And one thing that has helped me personally cope with the pandemic is making this podcast and making it with the most amazing, inspiring team. And that team is Ben. Ben, thank you. He makes it sound so brilliant. Now, having the right people on your team is something that can inspire and I think really encourage creativity. LinkedIn is one of the best places to help you find that team. It's an active community of professionals with more than 30 million members in the UK alone. And it doesn't matter what profession you're in, it covers them all. So if you're now thinking ahead, considering shifting business hours or maybe hiring more remote employees, LinkedIn Jobs can help. Now you can post a job with targeted screening questions which will get your role in front of the correct qualified candidates, helping you find the right person quickly. Then, when you need to manage your posts and contact candidates, you can do that from linkedin.com and you can also do all this from your mobile device. And to lend a helping hand, we've arranged for your first job post to be free. LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. So when your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs and post a job for free. All you've got to do is visit linkedin.com slash sound. Again, that's linkedin.com slash sound to post a job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And so to Elan. Now, in addition to a number of strong creative relationships he's built up over the years, Elan has worked on several films with Matthew Vaughan, including the wonderful Kick-Ass.
doing, Eli? Hey. Yeah, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thanks very much for asking. Nice to see you. You guys, you guys moved out of London just in in the nick of time. <laughs> yeah, we got out of Dodge. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I mean the timing was impeccable. With no idea what we were about to step into. So yeah, it's been amazing. Where are you though? Are you still in London or are you? Yeah, I'm still in Camden. I'm just yeah, where I've always been. Yeah, Kentish Town, Camden. Yeah, not far from where you are. Yeah, and then we we dragged the boroughs out as well. So they are about I know it's amazing. Yeah, Tom's just across That's there this amazing. morning, dropping off some um, photographs for Andy to sign for their their new Smith and Burroughs record. So I love that album. They've yeah, totally knocked it out of the park. Has it gone? It looks like it's gone as well as they might have hoped. Yeah, and it's not out yet as well. It's not out till later this month. I don't think. I mean, yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, but it's a second. It's... Is that is it a second single, right? Something like is that. It? Yeah. Yeah. I've just been roped in to film things for them and stuff. Like I bought a, <laughs> I ended up having to buy a steady cam for my iPhone to film a performance for them. It's like oh, learn, really? learning new skills very quickly. Oh, but I, like, um, I like that video that they did with Matt. That's oh great. yeah, Matt's, Matt's brilliant. I mean, you've known Matt forever, haven't you? He's a brilliant Yeah, of course. We human being. But also our kids do Suzuki violin together in Highgate. Oh, amazing. So, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. We've had a conversation for ages about trying to get you on on the podcast, and for for various reasons, it's we've never been able to get it to happen till now. And just sitting and working out what I was going to ask you today, I I'm going to say now that the idea of being able to even cover half of the work that you've done in one episode of this podcast would be impossible, because in terms of the work as a composer that you've done across so many different platforms, you know, not just in film world, TV world, the gaming world. Bali, all this stuff. It's incredible. So before we kind of dive into that, I was I, I thought it'd be really lovely for our listeners to get an idea of how you got into composing and what was the start of your your journey as a composer, really? Well, if I go right back, I you know, I, I learned violin as a kid and I got an electric guitar when I was a when I was a teenager for my 13th birthday. And uh, really, I wanted to be a guitarist in a rock band. So it, it kind of, it all went wrong. <laughs> um, but, but early on, I got introduced to Michael Kamen. And at 19, 20, I started working, you know, I was, I was at university, right, in the summer holidays for him and another composer who was a protege of Michael's called Ed Shermer. And, uh, and that's how I, I started off in the in the film music business, I suppose, uh, just just working with with Ed and um, and and also at that time there was Michael Price, who I know you've you've talked to on the program, and he worked with Michael. Uh, he was really his full time assistant, and uh, James Brett as well. So and uh, so there was sort of the, as I remember it all those years ago, it was the three of us hanging around. Um, I worked more with Ed Shermer at that time. It's amazing. I, I listened to your to your podcast with Michael, and, and I was thinking, wow, all, all these years later, and and uh, you know how 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 it's all unfolded. I you know I could have never imagined. So anyway, it was doing that. It was working for composers um, and learning the ropes that way, but then also doing short films. You know, I can remember sending off cassettes and the first short film I got, and and. Uh, doing project do it just you know building that up I did I started off my first uh 
television projects were medical documentaries for the BBC for for Horizon. And then my first real film was uh, Layer Cake, and that happened. Yeah, with 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 Matt Vaughan, and 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 that happened because uh, they they'd been working with Lisa Gerrard, and uh, Lisa had done an incredible job in many areas of the film, but she was struggling in a couple of areas, and they they needed someone young and keen, and and from meeting Matthew Vaughan and seeing the film for the first time to recording in uh, Strings in Abbey Road, it was exactly two weeks. Oh and, my God. Uh, yeah, it was really crazy. I even wrote a cue in the taxi on the way to the studio. Just no. on like we were still writing music on paper you know when I started out we were still you know with with Ed Shermer and and Michael Kamen we were still on analog tape and Sony Sony 48 track and so Pro Tools and all the digital stuff that was all that was all at the start of my career. Wow that was one of the things I wanted to ask you just in terms of of being you know of that that journey into it with you know with with watching someone at their work and then you being at the stage that you're at now and, and thinking about the differences in the world now compared to back then I guess the technology side of it is one big difference in terms of the advancement of things like Pro Tools and stuff is it different in any other way really in terms of when you were observing that world when you started to to you know where you are now well I, I think of course the technology but and, and that has I think two quite distinct knock-on effects and one is that as sampling became more powerful people started being able to make orchestral mock-ups of music and that had the effect of composers having to become computer programmers and that had its influence on on the work it you know it's a positive thing because you were able to visualize what you were doing but it's a very different way of working because rather than always imagining what you were creating was going to sound like and asking the your collaborators to imagine what it was going to sound like suddenly you could create it and you can sit back and be an audience member so I write something and I say I wonder what that sounds like and I sit back and I have a listen to it and that's a very different creative process and I and I'm not saying one's better there isn't some great big nostalgia for the old days there were many things about the old days that were much more difficult and much less quick. 
also you know you you get drawn into uh, you know i think in, in all as not just music but all aspects of work because we can undo and easily have multiple versions that i'll 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 be working on three similar ver- i'll be well i'll try this idea and i'll save that as this version but then i'll continue on this other idea and then i'll see which i'll sit back and i'll listen and i'll see which one as an audience member i prefer but this idea that you can make yourself an audience member that didn't exist before but i think what I would say the negative side of it is, if there is any, is that people start have started, I see quite often, to, or I hear quite often, to work within the boundaries of what the samples can do. And, and of course, there are many things that, that the instruments can do that the samples can't. And I think that that's, in some cases, it's just people's laziness for not working out what the instruments can do. In some, but, but more often, I think it's that that if you can't show it to the to the production and have them sign off on it, then you're asking them for a leap of faith, which they're not prepared to take. And I find now in in my at this point in my career where it's easier for me to take chances because I've I've more stability and I don't necessarily have to do everything that comes my way. I'm always looking for the collaborations where people are prepared to take a leap of faith in in what it is that I'm going to create because then then you can be really creative and you're not tied into somebody saying, I want it to sound just like that. You know, and and that's what I try to avoid. You mentioned Layer Cake and you, you obviously like then went on to make quite a few films with, with Matt Vaughn, Stardust and, and Kick-Ass as well. And with something, and he's kind of, you know, renowned for having, for using existing music, needle drops as well. And as a, as a composer for you, does that make things more difficult or, or make, does it make it easier in terms of when, when you are, you know, creating your own cues and thinking about, you know, where your music fits within the narrative and, and, and within the, the edit, I guess, with something like Layer Cake, when you've got two weeks to kind of, you know, get it locked in sort of thing. Because, I mean, that, the soundtrack for Layer Cake was extraordinary, both in terms of the cues, but the, the needle drops that he had in that, you know, everything from like that Duran Duran or, uh, Ordinary World track, which yeah. was amazing. And, and the way he used it and messed yeah, it up. Yeah, absolutely. Part, yeah. She Sells Sanctuary by the Cult. Mm. Yeah, there were so many. But yeah, does that, how does that work with you? I mean, Matt's got really good taste, but he's he's worked really hard at that stuff, you know. And, and sometimes he's got he chooses unusual things, but he engages with his team and asks them, and and we'd have we'd have long conversations and try many different things out, and uh, and so I always felt very included, involved in, and welcomed into the creative process of all the music. And, and I think that is quite important. I, I always see the role of the composer as deciding, uh, being involved in all the music choices, including the needle drops. Obviously, that that will be a, a music supervisor's job, but but you're, you're part of that music team and, and a leader of an area of it. And, and often, you know, your job isn't just to write music. Your job is to understand narrative, to understand storytelling, to, to know when not to write music. You know, I always think that you're not, before being a composer, when you're working on a film, you're a filmmaker. That's the most important job that you're doing. And you have to collaborate with the attitude of we're making a film and I will do, my job is the music, but you know, that may be that I get to write an amazing tune like John Williams, but it may also be that I just have to play one high note for two minutes and that's it. That's what 
serves the the emotion the emotional narrative of the scene, then that's the job. Yeah. Most recently, we've we've been addicted to Perfect Planet, which has just been so incredible. I mean, anytime there's there's you know Attenborough's attached to anything with the BBC or or any other channel, really, it's kind of a go to for particularly my twelve year old who's just obsessed with him. But this is a four is it the fourth time that you've you've worked on a, a kind of Attenborough presented production, and I, I was really interested to find out if if his presence influences what you write. Because he's, you know, as much as nature and wildlife and our world is is the story of this, you know, that what we're watching, his presence is so important within those programs, I think, anyway. And I just wondered whether he comes into any thought process when you're when you're creating for these shows at all. I think just at the start, the idea that you're working with uh, David Attenborough has such gravitas that yeah. it immediately makes you kind of sit up and feel like yeah. okay, I, I better be playing my best game. Yes, bring the A game to this one. <laughs> Not it. that you don't so, always, Elon. No, but, but, yeah. but you know, sometimes I feel that way walking into Abbey Road Studios. Not that any other studio isn't amazing, but just somehow you just walking into Abbey Road Studios, I feel like you know the things that have happened within these walls. It's like you really, it kind of just makes you sit up a little bit straight if you know what I mean so so and I think it's really I think it's that and especially with this program the message has become so urgent and so important and you know in in many ways because I've done these other projects with him uh you know in a sense I'd I'd scratched that David Attenborough itch you know I'd done it I'd worked with David Attenborough why would I do a fourth show and and really it's because of it was because of what was what it was about because I I you know like you know so many of us these days very passionate about the climate and sustainability and and interested about what it is that we had to do and so the opportunity through my creativity to be involved in uh, helping put that message out there was, uh, you know, too good an opportunity to turn down. Is that what you're, is that what is inspiring you to write the cues is your own personal connection to these stories? Because I imagine at what phase do you get involved with something like A Perfect Planet and when are you starting to write and what are you writing to and for? Well, they're, they're starting to put the edit together. And so I'm looking at, at scenes that are, you know, typically a bit too long uh, that they're still cutting down. And 
we talked about what we were going to do. I said that I wanted to take a contemporary, uh, as much as possible, a contemporary approach to it, so that it was so that the music felt different to some of the the other series that that came before it. I wanted to have this theme that we kept returning to in between the, the the animal characters that you met, and then some of it, you know, you you you're writing for these animal characters, and I think that's, you know, that they dictate the kind of music that they're they're going to need. Really, it's like writing a series of short films because the the stories are very contained. You know, this one's a love story, this one's a triumph against adversity, this one's, you know, a bit like a science fiction horror yeah. one. So I would do that I'd have that conversation with that there were three different directors on the show and I would have that conversation with them okay what what is what's this story here and and how do we approach it it is because if you think about you know when we watch like you know Disney films for example and the way that they have particular you know particular Disney films that have had you know the animation and then the characters are, are animal based and how they've studied the behaviors of those animals to really capture the personalities and the characteristics of them and the brilliant thing about these the real action shows is we're watching those exact things happen in real time and in you know in in real animals and that's the incredible thing i think as well in terms of these brilliant shows you go God, that's exactly what the octopus did in Finding Dory. You know, it's kind of like, it's it's so, it's wonderful. And, and just, you know, and you can see how important the music is to to help tell that narrative really as well. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, it's funny that, interesting that you mentioned Disney. I mean, first of all, credit to them that how well they've studied these things, bring them to life, but also you're, you are anthropomorphizing the 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 animals. Great word, think... by the way. That's an amazing <laughs> word. <laughs> but, I'll see if I can think of another big word to slip in somewhere. <laughs> um, but but you know, but but they are they're doing things that we that we relate to. That you know, if it's a you know, if it's a love story or it's a procreation story or it's a you know what whatever whatever it is and uh, but musically you're, you're 
trying to make it relatable. I mean, I feel like I'm skimming across everything at the minute, but I, 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 this morning I've been listening to the, the score for Ghost of is it Ghost of Tsushima? Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Um, and oh my God, it's absolutely breathtaking. It, just even from that opening cue, the way of the ghost, you're like, it's so transportative and just, it's epic. So this is a new game that you've you've composed the music from, and you've you've you know you've got his, gaming is another part of of your world. Where do you start with gaming? Because we spoke to Andy about this. Um, actually, he came on the podcast at Christmas, and Andy Burrows, and you know he was he was just talking about how it just baffles him the world of of kind of gaming and and what because you're there's no you can't predict the journeys that people are going on really. It is baffling, and it, to be honest, and 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 I'm still learning about it. But you know what? What really excites me about it is that the the way that people make games is still developing. The technology is is developing. Whereas you know, with film or with with theatre, the, the 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 technology has sort of reached its. You know, there there are still creative places, but it's kind of gone about as far as it's going to go. 
the way I see it is that these things in one sense, they're, they're all exactly the same. It's just the oldest of human things. You're, you're, you're telling a story. And so when, when cavemen made cave paintings, they were telling a story. And then when poets wrote poetry or people made songs, they were they were telling stories. And 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 there were various forms of this that, that happened. And you know, then you know, the, the, there was novels and there was, you know, there, there were very there were many ways that people told stories. And then one day someone invented the medium of film, and then more recently someone invented the medium of video games or computer games and that's just it's just the latest iteration of how human beings are are telling stories but all of these things and as you said it's that i really enjoy working across different uh different areas different disciplines all, all of them have their unique challenge and and with computer games you're exactly right you, you don't always know how the music's going to end up because they they build an engine that holds all the different parts of your music and depending on what the character's doing it may trigger different things either either different sections in terms of the timeline or different sections of well you know you're hearing the the tune but there's no drums but then you need more energy so now the drums kick in and so you've got to try and keep that jigsaw puzzle in your head. And I feel like there's quite a long way to go in terms of how we write, uh, creatively how we write, to take advantage of that. One of the challenges for me was, you know, the parts uh, that, that you often don't hear, like, you know, the, the, the synth in the background of a pop track or, or the violas in an orchestra. You don't normally hear those things, but you can do in the computer game because they're all recorded separately. And so you've got to make sure that you've really written every single line really well because it may be exposed. And I guess you're given kind of characters, you're given, you know, the worlds that they feature in, the scenarios, I guess, that they could experience. What, what are you, because you can't really, there's no script really, is there, in terms of... No, they may grab sections of the game for you to show you how it works. And of course, there are cinematic bits, but that's a bit more like doing normal film and television. But no, it's exactly what you said. They just give you a scenario and, and, and they explain to you what's happening and you can see the characters and you know the story. Actually, I, I find that quite liberating. And I write that way away from the screen often, but whatever I'm doing, because then you're really focused on the music. You're not being guided by the twists and turns on the screen. Uh, so I enjoy doing that. And in a sense, it's very freeing and imaginative to work that way uh, you know I, it's a bit more just like writing a song or a piece of music yeah I mean there's so many scores I want to talk to you about and a couple before we run out of time on this first episode of many hopefully that you'll appear on 
was um, this relationship you've got with Ray Fiennes as well, and most recently The White Crow, which was this beautiful film. If people haven't seen it, you should really go and kind of seek it out based on, you know, true story. But so you have all this, the world of the time, the, you know, when this was set of this, this dancer and the, and the music that they are dancing to, which is existing, you know, classical music. So I don't know what's, what the conversations you have, you had with, with Rafe about, about that and about what you would create for, for the narrative, for these characters to accompany that, you know, that whole world of these performances that we watch in this film. Well, it, it touches on what you said before about, you know, when there's chosen pieces of music versus scored bits of music. And with The White Crow, that was, that was really quite scary because all, all the chosen pieces of music were Tchaikovsky and the other, the other great, but, and, you know, and how do you, how do you follow, how do you follow that, right? That's, that's a real challenge. And I came up with this idea. One of the reasons I love working with Rafe is he's he 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 wants me to take an art very artistic approach, and I'll come up with an idea. And then the the thing that's a nightmare about it is he's he he'll be quite dogmatic about it. He'll really want to stick to this to to to, to the idea that we've. Uh, that 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 I've come up with, or that that we've agreed that the approach we really have to be completely true to the art in that idea. Uh, but but it's wonderful because it gives me the chance to do something interesting. So I thought, well, film music often has to have quite a lot of space in it to allow for the dialogue and the visuals and the performance on the screen, and uh, and that makes it a bit unlike film. Not all the time, but often it makes it unlike classical music. So I. I said to Rafe, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, based on, on the characters and the things we've talked about, I'm going to go away and I'm going to write classical pieces of music that I wouldn't typically write for film. And I'm going to give them to you. And you should pretend that these are pieces of music that you've just discovered and cut them into your film. And we won't change them. They'll just be like, if it doesn't fit properly, then it doesn't fit properly. It's like a trap that you found. We did break the rules in a few, in a, in a couple of places, to be fair. But, but he really embraced that idea. But, you know, I, I wrote an awful lot of music for that film that isn't in the film. It was, it was, uh, it was a real challenge. But it's always a, it's hard work working with Rafe, but always very rewarding. That's the thing, because you have these brilliant relationships with, you know, lots of different directors that you've worked with on numerous occasions and stuff. And I guess it gets to that point, doesn't it, sometimes where you, they know how, they, you know, you kind of almost want the challenge and you kind of, they can, they can kind of push in the, because you've already got that existing relationship. And um, we feature, I featured on one of your films that you did the score for, actually, which I'm, um, Spike Island, Matt's film. 
because when they did the um when they needed the sound of the crowd singing to I am the resurrection well I'm not on it actually but I was involved in it because they needed the, a crowd singing I am the resurrection oh I remember the story and you went out and got them all doing it I was hosting tea in the park in Scotland and Matt and Chris Coggle and stuff were up and uh, they came up, I think because obviously Matt's got a great relationship with Coldplay and Coldplay were headlining that night. So Chris and the boys had said that he could go on before they went on stage, the headline set to re- get the crowd. So then they asked Muggins here to go on and get ask the crowd to sing it. I was fully prepared to be like, throwing bottles of piss at me and all that kind of thing but thankfully as soon as they heard that sort of doom you know the kind of bass line the crowd went nuts and then they stuck this this the the words up on the screen it was insane experience having this crowd just sing at you it was bonkers i loved that film oh that's so cool yeah that is a great film yeah and i did the score with tim wheeler on that and in fact, I think, did Andy play the drums on it? He might have done. He might have, yeah. It's really brilliant. That'd be a great thing to talk about next time is all the kind of the amazing collaborations that you've you've had as well over the years. Even things like the Tim Peake project as well, you know, and, and how important live is to you. You know, you kind of going out and playing live, which, whether that's, you know, the Louvre or the Royal Albert Hall, all that kind of stuff. It's, it yeah. feels like it's an important part for you personally yeah well I've been trying to do more of it and the Tim Peake you know we only got to do one show with Tim Peake before the lockdown in Stockholm but we're just getting starting to put all of that back together now so uh so hopefully there'll be lots to talk about about space station earth uh, maybe that could be our excuse to get back for another episode so we can oh well I'd love that that's happening and I want to one last film I'd like to talk about today though is still Alice I absolutely adored that film and it was i just you know, julianne moore i'm a massive fan of i kind of you know i'd watch her paint a room but i just thought that was a a really gorgeous film and well i imagine it's such a delicate subject matter and in terms of approaching a score for something like that that's so emotional and so personal as well to the characters what what was that experience like and, and obviously working with Wash and, and, and Richard on that I mean it, it was very it was very the whole thing was very emotional for many reasons I think I was in the middle of doing Shaun the Sheep the movie believe it or not wow yin and yang <laughs> yeah and and I and I just didn't I couldn't take it on there was just no way and but I I need as you do in in, in this crazy old industry I needed to be polite and take the meeting and uh but and before I took the meeting I watched that they put together a, a sort of a trailery thing and I watched that with with um Steve McLaughlin my producer and 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 a couple of people in the studio and by the end of it everybody was crying it was just it was so powerful and I just thought I have to do this there's no way that I can't and then meeting Wash and Richard and Richard would ALS and you know he died not just after actually they they Julianne won the Oscar for it you know at least he got to see that but he was in very very poor health but but despite that able to be so expressive you know but with an iPad you know not really able to speak and um 
it, it, it was very intense, but I had to, I had to ask the, the, um, the Ardman who were making sure on the ship, I had to ask them for a sabbatical. And I went out to New York and I spent a couple of weeks in a hot, hotel room with, with Wash and Richard making that score. And then, and then I finished it back at home. The whole thing was very emotional and also because and i'm sure you know matt and tim wouldn't mind me saying but both matt and uh, matt whitecross and tim wheeler their, their, their fathers both suffered from alzheimer's before they died and i'd worked with them tim worked with tim on his album that was you know a, a tribute to his father and and worked with uh, you know matt on some uh, things for the Alzheimer's Society. So, so this was something that was already in my life, and 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 that I'd watched friends go through, uh, you know, painfully, and and so and so it was very close to my heart, and it was uh, something I'm really really proud of. so glad we we're able to talk about it because I just think it's an absolutely it's a beautiful accompaniment to the story it really really is um, Elan I could chat to you for hours and I hope we get to do it again please will you let me know when Space Station Earth is, is back up and taken off again and we can connect up and get uh, episode number two with you if that's alright and talk uh, uh, about yeah. some more stuff yeah, thank you for a perfect plan and also this I, I can't stop listening to the to the, the 66 pieces of music I've been sent from the ghost of <laughs> it's amazing it's so good it's so good I hope oh. you're going to release it as an album as well because it's just a fantastic... no, it is an album it's out it is an album yeah Great, and also it? I'm really excited just sort of shamelessly big myself up yeah. here but I got uh, nominated for a Dice Award which is a oh, really what? big deal in obviously the video game world and also just yesterday nominated for an SCL Award so, you know, getting some recognition for that. So I'm very, very grateful. Awesome. Well, it's lovely to see you and so great to chat to you. And I hope to see you and get to chat again soon. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks, Elon. Thanks Take care. On. Bye, love. Thank Bye. you.
From the score to Ghost of Tsushima, that's Forgotten Song, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Elan Eshkari. My huge thanks to Elan for taking the time to talk to us. Ghost of Tsushima is out now for the Sony PlayStation 4. What we do for every show is we put up a Spotify playlist for the episode, which gives you the opportunity to listen to the music that we play tiny snippets of within the episode in their entirety, in the order we play them. We have a playlist for every episode of the podcast and you can access that simply by searching Spotify or heading to edithbowman.com where you can also listen to every single episode of the podcast including my chats with Matt Whitecross and Michael Price. We've just launched a brand new website which makes searching for specific directors or films within episodes a lot easier. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do help spread the word by retweeting when you see us post. We also have a little YouTube channel where you find a show that I put together with guests from the world of film, music and TV. So please do head over and subscribe to that if you fancy. Now, next up, uh, George C. Wolfe, who is an extraordinary director, actor and writer, incredibly prolific within the world of theatre. But his most recent project for the world of film is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. He was an absolute treat to chat to about working with the likes of Viola Davis and, of course, Chadwick Boseman on his final performance. George C. Wolfe, next week's guest on Soundtracking. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.